This is Get a Real Job, the podcast devoted to people who choose risk over safe bets, who pursue their passion against all odds and are doing what they want, how they want, despite people and sometimes the voices in their own heads telling them they're nuts. When the field that I wanted to work in didn't exist, I created it. The only thing you have to decide is how hard you want to work. I really never went into the design of the restaurant of not succeeding. One way or another, I was going to succeed. I'm your host, Dan Bova, editorial director of entrepreneur.com. Thanks for listening. And now, get a real job. Today's guest has masterminded hundreds, if not thousands of crimes. So hopefully this interview won't end with me in a body bag. Ed Brubaker is one of the most acclaimed writers in comic book history, known for gritty crime series like Low Life and Criminal, as well as incredible runs on Batman, Captain America, The Uncanny X-Men, and a million more. He and his partner in crime, Sean Phillips, have a new book out, Night Fever. So we're going to learn all about that, all about his career. And why, Ed, why can't you just write something nice about ponies and lollipops for once? Welcome, Ed. How are you? Good. How you doing? Very good. Thank you. Thank you. So things don't usually go well for the criminals in your stories, but have you ever thought of an idea and been like, hmm, I should actually try that. I, I could make some money with this. It's funny because I know a lot of other crime writers, obviously, like we just kind of are drawn to each other, like a crew of heisters. <laughs> and it's like whenever I talk to them, we all talk about how everywhere we go in our lives, we're always spotting crimes we could commit. <laughs> you know, like, oh, that would be a good heist. Or, oh, I remember I used to go to this bank when I lived in Seattle and I was reading, I was doing research on a bank robbery crew and I realized their first heist was my bank. And I was oh, really? excited while I, when I would, I was like excited to go to the bank and I was like, ah, it's still the same old dumb bank. Well, it was like a great heist where the, it was, I can't remember the name of the crew. They, they, the main guy had operated out of a tree house. It was like the early nineties. Wow. And he, um, the first bank robbery he did, he did it by himself. He left a stolen car running in the parking lot, went in, did it just by himself, got the money, ran out to the car. The car had died. He didn't know how to hotwire a car, right? The car had died. He tried to get it started again twice. It didn't start. And he just ran off on foot and jumped a fence and ran across a golf course. That was like, <laughs> oh, such a great heist. It's so bad. It's like the, the beginning of out of sight, but you actually get away with it. So he right, went on to right. be like one of the best bank robbers in Washington state history after that. Like, wow. Uh, died in a violent shootout. Uh, that oh, I, man. I like listened to on the radio while it was happening because the whole area was shut down while it was going on. It was kind of crazy. So yeah, it's, uh, I guess the lesson there is baby steps, you know, your first yeah, baby one might steps. <laughs> yeah. take it slower. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's funny. Uh, I was, when I was a teenager before I, uh, was working in comics, I got, I got very lucky in that I, I managed to miss going to jail when several of my friends were, uh, you know, and I were getting into drugs and crime and um, some of them did go to jail. Some of them didn't end up living very long. And uh, so I always feel like very lucky that I managed to somehow come out the other side of that. And, yeah, you know, and it gave me a lot to write about. I certainly understand the criminal mindset of being stupid and young and dumb and desperate. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. And strung um, out, you know, <laughs> like, so, but yeah, it's uh but yeah, so I would never commit a crime now. Yeah. <laughs> Way too much to lose. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, my God, uh, we're we're all lucky that things worked out for you as well, because you have provided 
some of the most entertaining comic books and graphic novels ever written. And I'm going to, you can deny it, Ed, but I'm going to say that as a fact. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to let your word stand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was very flattering. So uh, how does it, uh, how does it, as a writer, you say you could get into the mind of the criminal, but you're also getting into the mind of like Batman and like the do good as do gooder of all Captain America. Like, uh, how does that balance out? You know, it's a, that one's a weird one. I feel like Batman was my first way into writing stuff. I didn't, you know, own myself or create myself was when I first was starting to break into comics more as somebody who was just writing comics and not writing and drawing my own comics, which is how I started. I did a mystery series uh, at Vertigo Comics, a, a line of DC that doesn't exist anymore, uh, called Scene of the Crime. And one of the, the editors, big editor at DC, Mike Carlin, saw it and just offered me Batman, basically. Wow. And I was like, oh, I can't write Batman. He had to like talk me into taking the job. It was hilarious because he realized <laughs> everyone and everyone, everyone who's interested in comics would take that job without thinking twice. But I was like, yeah, oh, I, don't, I don't think I could do it. Like to me, it was just, it was going to be too hard. Like, right. and then he's like, look, you, if you can write a mystery, you can write Batman. He's the world's greatest detective. And I was like, well, oh, isn't Sherlock Holmes the, <laughs> but, um, but then, you know, so that helped inform how I got into it though. And it was like, when I got into writing Batman, like Greg Rucka was like writing detective comics, which was the other main Batman book at the time. And so it was like, I instantly met him and we just started talking about crime comics and crime books and, you know, mysteries and how can we make this thing feel more like crime stories and less like a superhero. And immediately we came up with Gotham Central and pitched right. that to them. And then it took years to get that book out. And so it was like, I was always trying to find a way to do the kind of things I wanted to write while writing things I didn't own, like Captain America and Batman. I was always trying as hard as I could to do what those books needed to be, but also what I would want them to be mm -hmm. as, a, as a reader or a writer. So like my Captain America book, I think I was really lucky in that like 24 was really huge at the time that I started on Captain America and like James Bond and Mission Impossible. And so I just kind of took that sort of, you know, over the top espionage stuff and added like a little bit of like John Le Carre to it. And, you know, and then my own sort of childhood love of, you know, these characters, uh, like literally when I was like seven years old and I found out that Bucky had been killed in a retcon, I sat down and started figuring out ways to bring Bucky back to life. So like <laughs> in a weird way, like here, there I was in like my mid thirties or something and I got the chance to write Captain America. And my only thing was like, can I bring Bucky back? <laughs> and then I had this luckily I'd been sitting on this idea for 30 years <laughs> how to do it but, um, so it was like it was a lot of fun you know and I think when you're doing those jobs especially like work for hire jobs where you don't own it it's like the the trick is to figure out a way to there's three things you have to make it feel like your your own work like you're mm -hmm. not just doing something for a paycheck it has to actually be important to you you have to do what the book needs but you also have to try to find a way to sort of make it feel like you at the same time. So yeah. it's, it's a real, I, I got lucky. I got, I had great artists. Like I got to work with Darwin Cook at DC and Michael Lark. And oh, I had Steve Epting and, and Michael drawing my Captain Americas and Mac, Michael drew my Daredevil run. I mean, Daredevil's basically just a noir comic. It's like, if something good happens to that guy, you've done it, you've done it wrong. 
(laughs) So I got really lucky with like the artists that I, that I was paired up with. And, you know, and then I just stuck with these artists, like, like Sean and I have been doing comics since 2000 or something. That's, Um, uh, yeah, yeah. that's, that's, I I do want to ask you about the partnerships and and the creative collaboration, but but first, just for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with what it's like to be a creator-owned comics versus, you know, DC and Marvel, can you break that down a little bit? Just uh, like a, a 101 course on that? Yeah, sure. If you do anything for like Marvel or DC, those are the two main, you know, American comic book publishers. Publishers all over the world have different kinds of deals. Like there are publishers in Europe and Japan where the publisher owns everything, even though the creators come up with it. There are publishers where the creators have a stake. There are publishers where the creators own everything. Most of the time in comics, the publishers want to own a stake of it, at least, mm-hmm. because they're usually paying for the art. Sometimes they're paying for the writing too. Marvel and DC have operated since... I'm not sure if both of them grew out of the pulps, but one of them, Marvel, grew out of the pulp publishing. Like Kazar and I think uh, the Angel were both originally like um, pulp characters. Uh, Martin Goodman was like a pulp publisher, and he was one of those pulp publishers that kept the rights to all the characters. He didn't give the creators like Dashiell Hammett, you know, wouldn't have worked for Martin Goodman because he wouldn't have owned anything he wrote. Hmm. So there's there's that way of of working in comics, which is called work for hire, where you get like a page rate and you sign away all your rights to the stuff. Sometimes they have stipulations in there where if they take your story and adapt it into a movie, you'll still get some money. Usually whatever amount is is promised very vaguely and that and that money you in your head, it sounds like a lot of money or you think it's going to be a lot of money. And then a movie comes out and then you get like a check for five grand or something. And you're like, what yeah. the fuck? You know, like that, that had been my experience until recently. And, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, but you got to go into that stuff eyes wide open, you know, like, but even going in eyes wide open, as I did knowing, you know, coming from independent comics and with the history of growing up in comics and knowing what happened to Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and even Stan Lee to some degree who co-created all this stuff, who didn't own any of it either. He made a, he made out like a bandit compared to those guys, but you know, he yeah. wasn't a billionaire, which he should have been. You know, like, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but the companies in general, you know, like that work for hire deal is a great way to make a living as a writer. But, you know, even going in eyes wide open, like I did, I ended up feeling kind of bitter about it for a while because it was like, well, you know, I didn't they didn't have a movie studio when I started writing The Winter Soldier. Like there was no, there was no thought in my head that this guy would ever appear in a movie or a TV show or something when I was writing. Right. And then five years later, there it is. And you're yeah. like, I'm in the movie. <laughs> like, I, okay, I, I so. wanted to ask you about that on IMDb. You're credited as scientist number two. That was me. I had a line of dialogue even, but it got cut out. You want me to do it? Yeah, please. It's, it's all in Russian. Oh God, I haven't practiced it for a long time. So my Russian is going to be terrible. Deprini Maja. Which I believe means now do it now. Wow. <laughs> but I, it I, could, I could be completely wrong. I could I mean, it was when I was pushing him onto the chair, I was like yelling, be pretty much. But which is great because I ended up getting like, uh, even though I'm not in SAG, I was like, I got like a whole week long, like SAG deal to do. Oh, really? I, I get residuals on that movie. I've made more in residuals on that movie than I've made, you know, from Marvel writing the comics. <laughs> 
So, wow. Well, my okay. one cut line of dialogue. <laughs> Academy voters, if you're listening, you know, yeah. please. No, uh, I have no desire to act again. Please consider. <laughs> it was the uh, hardest. I made Robert Redford do a second take. Like, come on. I made Robert Redford <laughs> have to redo his perfect take because I was standing in the background stroking my beard like a mad scientist. What a fucking idiot. You know? <laughs> like, but yeah, so so the difference to, to get back to your initial question, the, so work for hire is where they pay you and they own everything. You know, it can be, I had a really good experience with it overall. Like even, even including, you know, them taking the stuff and adapting it into movies and me feeling bitter about it. Ultimately, I feel really good about the, the end result of all of that. And I also, as a writer, you know, when I was working for them, the editors that I was working with really appreciated what I was doing. The publisher really loved what I was doing. And so I had a lot of freedom Mm. Uh, I and the artists I was working with to just really tell the stories that I wanted to tell. I, I had a really great experience. Not everybody's experience is as great as mine. Yeah. You know? So I understand that. Like, but I was very much like, I, you know, if somebody told me to change something I didn't want to change, I would push back and, you know, and usually win uh, because, you know, the publisher liked what I was doing. And so I would just felt confident about it. But I also always had other things that I was doing on the side. While I was writing Captain America, I was launching Criminal with Sean. Mm. Sean had drawn a thing called Marvel Zombies that Robert Kirkman wrote, the guy who created The Walking Dead, that was about zombies in the Marvel Universe. All the superheroes became zombies. And Sean drew that, and that sold like hundreds of thousands of copies. And then I had just done The Death of Captain America, which sold like a couple million copies. Wow. So we then launched you know, the least commercial kind of thing for the market which was like a crime comic where there were like four of them, you know, and, and people still say, there's too many crime comics. I'm like, there's like three. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? There's like 400 superheroes. But so we took the moment of like the biggest our names had ever been and then went and tried to do something that was totally out there. You know, like the, the John Sales, one for them, one for you kind of. Yeah, yeah. Three and... Well, but so I always, when doing work for hire, had to have something that I was doing on the side that I either had a stake in, like we did with Sleeper, our first book, which we don't own, but we, you know, get a percentage of anything that they make off of it. Um, and then, you know, now once we started Criminal, like Sean and I never went back to ever doing work for hire ever again. And it's been about 18 years now. Wow. Yeah. Kind of insane. Not not, not too bad. It goes not, fast when you sit down at a computer and write for 18 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of writing in the process, so I just I just read Night Fever, uh, which which I thought was awesome. I loved it. And in the afterward, you pretty much say you don't know where the idea came from. You don't want to think about where the idea came from. Don't ask me where the idea came from. So where did the idea come from, Ed? <laughs> Well, the initial germ of the idea started probably around 2008 or 2009 when I was, I had a, for on and off for, you know, since I was a kid, I've had insomnia mm. since I was about eight or nine when someone tried to break into our house, uh, my first encounter with crime, I guess. Wow. Other than Encyclopedia Brown stories. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and after that, I became like an insomniac and uh, developed like a bit of an anxiety disorder, I think. Um, mm. And so I, you know, when I was having really bad insomnia back then, I, I remember getting up one night and walking around the neighborhood and just seeing how almost every house was 
quiet. And then there were a couple houses that were clearly party houses where people were just getting started at like three in the morning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and just, and then I just started thinking about this idea of like, what if you were an insomniac and you went out and you just became a different person at night? almost mm. like, and then yeah. what, what would happen? And, you know, I just kind of mulled the story over and then I got busy on other stuff. And it was like, I, I, I subscribe to the Ross McDonald theory of like, just write your ideas down in a notebook and let them kind of simmer in the back of your mind for as long mm. as possible until you get around to it. And then it becomes like a more developed thing by the time you get around to writing it. Okay. Um, yeah. And that was one I would come back to occasionally and think, is there something here? Is there something I can really grab onto here that doesn't just feel like I'm doing a David Goodis story or something. Um, and after we, Sean and I did this series uh, that started during the lockdown, we did this series called Reckless that we did like five books in a row over the course of about a little under two years, I think that we put out five, you know, 150 page graphic novels, which was a huge amount of work. It's like a detective series um, that takes place in like 80s LA. So it's like heavily researched. Um, and then we were both like exhausted from that and wanted to do something different. And Sean brought up the idea again of, he, he'd periodically been asking me to write something set in Europe or the UK because he lives in England. Mm. And he's, he's, he's been to America like a bunch over the, you know, for conventions and stuff, but he hasn't lived here ever. And so he, he wanted to draw something that was more like the worlds he moved in. And yeah. so I started thinking about that and I, and then I, this idea came back to me and I thought, Oh, what if I took that idea and I put it, you know, in Europe. And then I thought, Oh, what if it's like a guy on a business trip to Europe? And then it all just kind of started falling into place more. And I was like, oh, that really works. And it's totally different. And yeah, but it makes more sense that you, because you sometimes you go on business trips and you just can't sleep and you're just in this weird, you know, like, yeah, sort of, yeah like limbo or something. Yeah, like, yeah. In the real world. And that all started coming together. And, you know, at the same time, you know, I don't want to get too into the details of it, but I was having a lot of uh, stuff going on within my family, like a family health crisis was happening. And so I was having to spend a lot of times at like hospitals and in waiting rooms and mm. things like that. And just sort of facing that kind of existential darkness of the world, uh, you know, and the older you get, the more often you have to yeah. face that, I find, uh, sadly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's unfortunate that we don't all live forever. Um, right, right, right. <laughs> well, actually, right. it's probably fortunate at this yeah. point. But, <laughs> God, I would want to live us, forever now. You know, <laughs> if you could pick the ones who live forever. Yeah, put me on the Elon, the Elon Musk, like, uh, like secret colony on Mars where yeah. we're happy, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, the, so I think as I was writing the book, like I, I usually outline you know, kind of loosely, like I'm more of the, I, I don't know how many writers you've interviewed about this, but there's like a theory about writers are either architects or gardeners. Uh -huh. Like a gardener knows what kind of plant they're growing, but they're not hundred percent sure how it's going to look when it's done. Whereas an architect, a hundred percent knows every detail. Yeah. You know, whereas you get guys like Pelicanos or Lahane who don't outline, or even Stephen King who doesn't outline apparently. And you're like, what? So yeah. I like outline roughly. So I know where I'm going. Like I have goalposts, okay. but in between them, I can, you know, get there any way that I need to. And it's, so you get to discover things on the page. This was probably the loosest outline I'd ever done. And, huh. um, and I think I was writing it 
you know, as I was going through all this personal stuff and I was using the book as a way to sort of put my fear and anxiety like into something that was like an escape from it at the same time. Yeah. So, and I think that really, really helped me like be able to get through it for one thing. But also when I was done with the book, I just didn't know. I was like, is anyone going to even like it? And I showed it to three or four friends and they were like, I think he's there. Like, I think it might be your best thing, but also it's like, it like haunts me. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, oh, good. That's, I mean, I guess that's what I want. Yeah. (laughs) But I was all, but everybody seemed to like all the really weird out there elements of it too. And how it just sort of had this kind of paranoid end of the world feeling to it. Yeah. Being like a noir story too. So yeah, we, we took a lot of swings and, and I think, you know, some of them actually hit and I was really pleased with how that came out. Yeah, no, the I won't give anything away, but when it ends, the the ending frames are just sort they are haunting. That's like the only way to describe it, the the looks on people's faces. It's it's pretty great. Yeah, I I was uh I'm trying, I keep trying to find ways to talk about the book without spoiling the book, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's such a specific thing, but I was like talking to someone about it yesterday and I was like, well, the question at the end of the book is, is it a lie or is he, is he, is he telling the truth or is he lying? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, and, and then, like, and then when Batman shows up, man, yeah. <laughs> I did not see that coming. That was you did amazing. not see that coming and then he kills him. <laughs> <laughs> and I sold 2 million copies. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're, um, so when you're outlining or or any phase of of writing are you someone who's like you know I get up and from eight o'clock in the morning until noon I'm at my desk like what's your what's your day like um it it shifts from time to time aspirationally that is my day is like I get up at like five thirty or six and I write you know, I, I take a slow like hour to get to writing and then I write for four ish hours. And then the rest of the day is like, you know, well, before the strike, it was like meetings and writing Mm -hmm. stuff or, you know, research about stuff or reading or, you know, trying to maybe get some exercise every now and then. Um, but yeah, right now, uh, that's pretty much like I, I get up in the morning and I'll have too much coffee and then I'll write for a while and then I'll go out to like the picket line or go out to lunch with a friend or I'll go do something with my wife. But yeah, I try to, I try to take the first part of the day and use that for writing. Yeah. It doesn't always happen. And sometimes I end up writing in the morning and then the afternoon and also the night. And I'm, I'm definitely getting too old for that kind of life. Yeah. But like when I was like before the strike, I was writing a, a graphic novel finishing a rewrite on a movie and running a TV show at the exact same time. And so my life was pretty hellish. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I remember talking to one of the people on the guild, on the guild committee. And I was like, look, if we don't strike for at least a few weeks, I'm going to be really mad. (laughs) Now I'm like, please let us come back. But, (laughs) but, uh, but, um, but obviously the whole whole industry was going like that up until I think. (laughs) So being that comics are obviously and TV and all this are obviously visual mediums. When you're writing, are you sketching at all? Or is it all like, are you typing? How do you go about that? Um, I write in a notebook um, on paper. I use these uh, Claire Fontaine notebooks because I really like the design of them and the way the paper feels. Um, Mm. And um, I don't really do any any drawing anymore very often um 
every now and then if I have like a cover idea or Sean, you know, sends over a cover sketch for like, I might like sketch, like, you know, take some, take that and resketch it just like blocks to show him like, what if you moved this here or that there, but, um, or like when we have a map or something, I'll like sketch that out to show him like, this is yeah. what it sort of needs to look like. And, and then he always redraws everything. Um, but that's, that's incredibly rare. Like usually I just, you know, I think um, as I write the script, I write it in terms of each tier on the page, usually, as opposed to just panel by panel. Like I need to sort of see, is this going to be a wide shot? Is this going to be a close up? Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, which I don't do as much of in screenwriting because, uh, you know, they don't want you to. Right, right. <laughs> they keep your <laughs> ideas like, to yourself, Ed. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you, uh, so when you're working with Sean or any of the other artists that you work with, are you giving them tons of details about what you're picturing in your head? Or do you kind of like give them a rough, like, it's a dark street and then let them sort of go with it? Well, let me see. I'll read you. I can read you the script for Night Fever. Yeah, see, that'd be great. See how I do it. It's uh, so like this is panel one. It just says the moon in the sky, some stars. Panel three is a wider shot of a street scene in this town in the middle of the night. The statue is in the middle of a roundabout intersection with cool old buildings on the street. The area is deserted of people, but there are cars parked here and there and a cable car moves down the street in the night. All the technology and cars and fashion in this story reminds us of the late 60s to the mid 70s. We never state the name of the country or city or what year it is, but it's probably somewhere in France in the early 70s. Cold War era Europe is the feel. A bit of Fellini mixed with Toth and Munoz and Giardino. Uh, there's something that feels very odd and mysterious about this town and almost like a tourist attraction at some point at the same time. It's a small city on the coast. So there's a beachfront area too, like the French Riviera or Lisbon or Porto. So that's like, okay. established. that's like to help establish the mood on the first yeah. page. Um, generally panel descriptions are a sentence or two, you know, but yeah, that's yeah. two paragraphs. So that's sort of how I how I try to get him into you know, yeah. the feel of it is. I'm always about the feel of it, uh, almost more than than the specifics of the setting. It's like I'll I'll highlight if something really needs to be important. Like this is in the foreground, or or like I'll underline mm -hmm. something important. We need to see this car here now by, at this house that wasn't right. there before. Like that will be important later. Like things like that because. Like I'm usually sending Sean the scripts, you know, 10, 20 pages at a time, and then he'll be drawing it as I'm writing the rest of the book. So with it being a, a script, really, really for an audience of one, are you ever like, Sean, don't fuck this one up? Not that specifically. Yeah. <laughs> Sean, I'm, I, sometimes I'm like, I describe a thing and then I read over the description and I'm like, Sorry, that's a lot, isn't it? Well, you know, do your yeah. best. Try, you know, try to nail it. It's only the most important panel on the page. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah right. I'll put jokes in like that. But yeah, it's definitely like I think of Sean as the first reader of the story. And he's told me since the beginning of our of our creative partnership for, you know, 23 years now, he's told me he never wants to be told what's coming next. He just wants to read it 
as it oh, comes, that's partly cool. because he's enjoying the story as it's unfolding as he right. gets it, but also partly because he doesn't want to know what's coming next in case it's really hard to draw. Okay. <laughs> he doesn't want to have that dread of like 12 pages from now slowing him down, which I think uh, is really funny. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That's yeah. fantastic. So you guys, uh, so uh, so Night Fever is out. Uh, where the body was, it will be out. In December, um, yeah. That's so, our next book. So how many books in advance are you generally working on? Uh, well, we used to... Uh, things have shifted the last year or so, uh, we're, we're, since we've been focusing solely on graphic novels the last couple of years, right. we've had to start building in more and more lead time. We used to finish a book and then it would come out a couple months later. Like we would, yeah. you know, we would get a little ways into the book and then we would solicit it. But now we're, you know, that we're more built into the book market. You have to have your books done, you know, six, nine months in advance. So we do, we're used to putting out like two books a year or like the first, the first year we did Reckless, we put the first three out in 10 months because we were just so used to being able to put out a comic every month that was like 30 pages long. So we just banked the first book and then we started working on the next one before we released the first right. one. So right now we sort of, like Sean is still drawing the last like 20 pages of where the body was, but because of the book market, we had to announce the book before, right? Like a week before night fever came out where, right. was, is this good or you like, but then the advance orders on, you know, on both books, like immediately they kind of barrel roll each other. So oh, that's I great. Feel like, you know, there's, there's part of it, us coming from monthly comics and the, the sort of, you know, growing up as weekly comic book people, like, there's some part of me that's like, I hate not being on the shelves every month. So it's like, I think we're still pretty into doing like two books a year. Cause at least we're, you know, yeah. like if we did some shorter books, probably, you know, three books a year. But right now I'm like really into writing the longer books. Like the book after night fever is like probably like 40 pages longer. Oh, wow. So yeah. is that, is that purely a creative decision or is there a reason why you think that's the better way to go than the, the monthly installments? Oh, just creative really. Um, though for us, uh, it was a little bit of a combination of creative and being able and seeing if we could actually pull it off because not a lot of people coming from like the, um, the comic store market, there's like a difference between like the people who do graphic novels that are only aimed at the bookstore market, which are usually a lot of like young adult stuff or like dog yeah. play or whatever, um, tales of a, you know, ordinary kid, or I'm getting all these names wrong, <laughs> um, but, but uh, you know, those things didn't exist when I was growing up, but those are like some of the biggest selling graphic novels, but you go into a comic store and you know, it's like a whole other market. And right. a lot of people that, came out of the comic store market like I did, uh, they're still sticking to like the monthly comics and then collecting them afterwards. And some of them have tried graphic novels here and there and they just haven't done well for them. And so they thought, well, I make more money doing the, you know, I, or I, I, we, the way they survive is the monthly comics and then the trades are basically paid for by the monthly comics. And so like, it's a valid, you know, way that everybody was doing it, but we'd always really loved the European model and wanted to do graphic novels. And mm. what we'd found over the years is we would do single issues and we'd collect them in trade paperbacks. And then when we had three trade paperbacks out, we would put out a deluxe hardback collecting those three into one big hardback for like 50 or 60 bucks. 
Right. Those ended up becoming our best-selling things. Was yeah. like hardbacks. And we found we had emails from people all the time. Uh, you know, when's the deluxe hardback? And we had these waiting for the deluxe hardback people. Yeah. And so when we put out our first original graphic novel in 2018, this book called My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies, that was like our experiment. Like, all right, we're gonna roll the dice. We're gonna just take three months off and do this book, and then we'll go back to monthly comics. And you know, mm-hmm. and it was a huge hit. It like we didn't think it would do anywhere near the numbers it did. It sold out in a month, like a month and a half, something like that. And we had to rush out a paperback that's gone through like a couple printings. And it was like, oh, okay, this is where our market is. Like, and yeah. other people in comics, you know, that that have like our level of success have really not sort of tried to embrace the the form as much as we have. Yeah. And so in, in a way, I'm really glad because it kind of leaves it open for us. Yeah, <laughs> There's right. Not right. a lot of competition in the in the comic book stores <laughs> for graphic novels, um, for original graphic novels right now. That's I used true. to joke that I would just do whatever, like when it when uh 20 years ago, I would be like, well, Alan Moore isn't doing a miniseries this year. So let's do a miniseries because we might be able to win an award because he won <laughs> for it. You know, like, like when you're when you're first starting out, and you're trying to find your little edges. Yeah. Um, but great. yeah, so I the the graphic novels have really though it's it, you know, I think we'd still want to do them even if even if they hadn't been so successful for us. But yeah, they've really opened up a new you know, a uh, creative avenue for us. I think we both feel like uh, more fulfilled by it in some ways. And also um, we both are working. We're actually, we're actually doing more bizarrely, mm. uh, okay. but Sean had to stop every month and do a cover for a comic, you know, so there's four months, right, right, so there's right. four days of the month or five days of the month where he's working on a different thing instead of the comics. And now he just has to do two covers a year. And then he can just draw all the time. So, right. and he's an incredibly productive artist. He's been doing comics since he was professionally since he was 14 years old. So he's been working in comics since the like mid eighties. That's incredible. 80s. Yeah. He's, he started out doing like girls comics for like British magazines that don't even exist anymore. That were like, oh, wow. like teenage <laughs> girls and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so if you were just starting out, today looking at the landscape of how comic books sell and how they're made and the uh, avenues of distribution what would be different or would it be different would it be very different from when you started out i mean there's more avenues for getting published now than when i started out um, I never finished answering the question, so we'll we'll get back to it about the difference between creator owned and oh, right. and and work for hire. When I started out, there was Marvel and DC, and there were some small publishers, like indie publishers, where you could bring your book. And you know, like when I first got published, I was doing black and white comics that I wrote and drew and did did the letter did everything basically except for coloring the covers which i always weaseled a friend into doing because i don't know how to color anything um (laughs) and you would go to these various independent publishers who had different kinds of deals but with the independent publishers you generally kept all your ownership and they didn't pay you money up front to draw it you did the thing that you wanted to do and you brought it to them and they published it and you if it made profit you would split the profits um what happens in comics now is 
really, I think Dark Horse right now and Image are the only places that you can go with a comic, uh, the major comic book publishers that go through the comic market and the book market where you actually retain ownership of your work fully. Mm. Like a lot of the smaller publishers are sort of IP farms a little bit where they they have Hollywood deals and they want to bring you in and they'll throw a lot of money at you. But then they want 50% of the media rights to your project and half of the copyright. And so there's a bunch of publishers that appear to be like independent publishers where you can go in with them and end up feeling just as burned as you did at Marvel and DC if you created a, a character for them that they turned into a movie or a TV show where you're like, oh, oh, I see. Um, you know, and at the same time, people are willing to, you know, take those deals because, you know, creative field, everybody, you know, people, if you, if you grew up wanting to do comics, you know, like I did, like, you'll take bad deals at the early part of your career because you're so desperate to get published and, you know, and, and the sad thing about comics is even in, you know, like, so Dark Horse and, and Image have deals where the creators can can, you know, we'll keep all the rights. Like Image was founded to be that by these guys who all left Marvel, the biggest artists in in the industry in the early 90s, felt like they weren't getting, you know, like treated right at the publisher. And they went off and they decided to take their prestige and go elsewhere and start their own company. And and so they built this system for us where like we complete we keep all ownership and the vast majority of the profit on the books goes to, you know, they take a nominal percentage on single issues and and like a really small percentage on trade paperbacks, you know, at image, I don't know exactly what dark horses deal is, but I do know that they, you know, aren't taking half the ownership on everything anymore. Um, so how, how are they making money? Dark horse. Or, or wait, oh, how are, how are the, how are the publishers making yeah. money? <laughs> oh, like image. Well, yeah. image, you know, I mean, they did publish the walking dead. They published saga. They publish our books. You know, I mean, they have a lot of books that come out that's, that move a lot of numbers. And, you know, like if you are making, you know, 20, 25% of the profit on a, on a book, you know, and you, and you publish, you know, 10, 20 books a month that are highly profitable, you're, you know, you're making enough. That's they're not a huge company that's constantly trying to expand either, though. They yeah. try to keep, you know, they're they're a company that's built to help people publish comics. That's you know, cool. and they've moved, they've become a bigger publisher because of The Walking Dead, really. I mean, I think Spawn was a huge thing for them in the 90s, you know, but the market really changed in the 21st century to being more of a book-driven market and Walking Dead you know, 10 years ago was the biggest thing in the world because of the TV show and right. the, you know, the book market really exploded for comics, but, you know, because of that to some degree again, you know, and so, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a field where everybody can just go in and, and have an easy time of it. Like anyone who has made a really good living in comics is one of the lucky few, mm. you know, and the majority of them also have horror stories about things they gave up and contracts they signed that they wish they hadn't. And, you know, but um, yeah, there's probably a, you know, couple hundred people in the world who make a really good living off of comics. And then there's probably a couple thousand people who also do comics who barely scrape by or, or look at those of us who actually do okay. And are like, God damn it. How do I get there? You know? Right. Yeah. So like my, 
advice to people starting out is always just what do you want to write? Like if you just want to write Spider-Man, like you'll probably never get that job. Mm. Like that's honestly like you need to want to just do comics. You need to want to write your own stories. And it's when you write your own stories that editors that work for those companies see what you can do at your, when you're putting yourself on the page, your own sort of passionate, this is the kind of thing I want to write. And then they'll come to you and they'll be like, Hey, would you like to write Spider-Man? You know, like right. that's, that's kind of the way it goes. You always have to show someone what you can do. And, you know, with comics, it's hard. I was lucky because I drew my own comics and I'm not a great artist, but I was, you know, passable in my teens and twenties. Um, and so I could draw something that looked roughly like an Archie comic, but had a bunch of, you know, people doing drugs and crimes in it. Um, <laughs> it was low life. Um, but, but those books would get read by editors who would then go, oh, you can do a crime story. So, you know, yeah. for things. And, you know, so it's always that stuff that gets you on people's radar is the stuff that you just did because it was, it had to come out of you. You know, That's... it wasn't you were trying to figure out how to make rent that month or you really wanted to get this one Batman idea down about how he's the one who killed his parents in that alley that night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I want the money. Yeah. Um, you know, like those are, those are the, those you'll never get that job. Like those, yeah. you know, like you can work your way up through the industry that way and eventually get to those jobs. But those, those people, you know, who are the big names in comics that are making, you know, those the that are, that have those jobs, usually they didn't start out that way. Like Scott Snyder is one of the biggest, Batman writers and Tom King, they both started out doing books at Vertigo, just like I did, mm. you know, like doing like crime things or horror things. And, you know, and then they were like, Hey, would you like to come do Batman? You know? And then, and now they're the hugest writers there. I think they're more successful than anyone from my generation ever was. Do you, are there any of the film adaptations or film versions of comic books that you are like that they nailed it? And then conversely, <laughs> are there any that you're like, Wow, they messed that up. Oh. <laughs> now you're trying to get me in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, the Incredibles really nailed it. Whatever they were adapting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, the Incredibles is the best superhero movie. The second best one is I, I'm in my heart is the Winter Soldier Captain America movie, just because I love that movie. Mm. But that movie feels more like the three days of the condor with superheroes in it, which is kind of the kind of thing I was doing in the books, which yeah. is why I like it. That's um, awesome. I mean, I don't want to pick on anybody for a bad adaptation. I, I, you know, most of the DC stuff I haven't loved since yeah. I was a kid, but I was never that huge of a DC guy anyway. Like I never thought Michael Keaton was right for Batman. Like, mm. Because I was like the generation that should have cared that cared about that. Actually, looking right. back, it's fine. But yeah. I was really upset about it when I was like eighteen. You know? <laughs> like, how dare they hire Michael Keaton? He's not. He doesn't look like Bruce Wayne at all. He has a mullet. Um, you know, like. But yeah, I honestly, my favorite comic book adaptation is History of Violence. Oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's also one of my favorite Cronenberg movies. That's it's a great awesome adaptation. Movie. It takes enough from the book that uh, that you that you can see where it started from, and it becomes its own thing. I love that movie. There's so much stuff adapted from comics now. There was a thing on Netflix a few years ago called "The End of the Fucking World" that was that was adapted from a graphic novel. Oh right, yeah, series, and I love that. There's more. There's more good ones now, but you know, adapting superhero stories into tv shows and movies like 
I'm not the audience for that, really. Like, I mm. go see that stuff out of a bit of curious nostalgia, but like, I haven't gone to see a superhero movie in a theater since one of those Marvel premieres, the whatever the last one they invited me to that I, you know, went to. Oh, okay. And, uh, like, I just am not the, I'm, you know, I'm a guy in his 50s. Like, if they're making superhero stuff and I'm the target market, they're doing it wrong. <laughs> like, you know, I, they're, yeah. I'm, I'm like, Where's my new Longmire? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, not really. But <laughs> I'm more about Columbo reruns. <laughs> That's great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Ed, this has been really great talking to you and hearing all this stuff. And uh, I, I'm i going to recommend once again that people check out this Night Fever because it was uh, sort of indescribable, but just super cool. And I, I can't wait to see where the body was. Uh, and so how can people, besides pre-ordering those books, like how can they kind of keep tabs on what you're up to? If they go to my bio page at my publisher, there's a link to my newsletter that comes out every month or two. Okay. <laughs> and that is my only social media. I did... I did MySpace and Twitter and and uh, at some point about six years ago, for some vague reason, I quit Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just seemed like it went from being a place that was helpful to a place that just you went and got screamed at and screamed at other people. <laughs> and, uh, so I, uh, yeah, I stopped doing social media about six years ago, but I have this newsletter and there's a link on my bio page at imagecomics.com slash Ed Brubaker, I think. You can sign up for my newsletter. I have about ten or 15,000 subscribers now, which is more people than any of my 90,000 Twitter followers ever actually read a tweet. Yeah, 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 right. Exactly. <laughs> you, know, exactly. Like, you, you spend all this time on those things and then you look and you're like, the most uh, 15 people looked at this? Yeah. <laughs> it just feels like such a waste of... I, I wish I could get every minute I spent on on that hell site back to spend them reading novels. Yeah, right. You know, like what was wrong with me that I needed? And it's it's because it's attack because it's attacking something in your brain that wants yeah. stimulus. It's like yeah, you know. And I and I'm an ex drug addict, so you <laughs> That's know what style you recognize a bad drug when you see it. So yeah, exactly. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I recognized it immediately and then stayed for like seven years. <laughs> Like, oh, this is awful. Uh, here I am every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Well, Ed, really, really great talking to you again and hearing hearing the backstories on all these incredible books you've been up to. So thank you on behalf of a readership like me, because really, you really do things differently, and, and we appreciate it. Wow. Well, thank you so much. That means the world to me. It should, because I'm like the stamp of my, like your numbers are going to go through the roof now because, <laughs> because I said that. <laughs> uh, but yeah. no, seriously, great, great, great talking to you. Uh, really. Yeah, great talking to you too. <laughs> all right. That's our episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Get a Real Job comes out every Tuesday. So be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you harvest your favorite podcasts. Leave us a review. Give us a share. Don't make me big people. Go to entrepreneur.com for new episodes of this and to listen to our other great podcasts. Thanks. <laughs>